we have another gift this morning, as Jonathan said on this third Sunday of Advent. We have uh, one of our emerging elders uh, who is going to be coming and sharing with us this morning uh, on a time to heal. Jim and Valerie Bixler have been such an incredible gift to this house. How many of you, just by way of hands, have experienced on a personal level uh, their voice, their life, their love, their ministry into your lives? Um, I know that we have, and I am so deeply grateful for that. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Jim, for being a true father and mother in this house, in our lives, to David, to Renee. The fruit of your lives and your ministry is so abundant, and it's so profound, and it's our honor to receive from you this morning. So Dr. Jim, would you come, and would you bless the house with the word of God this morning? Pray with me. Lord, who indeed can discern his own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So if you have your um, Bibles with you, if you'd turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. I'm going to look at verses one through six. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. As we come to this season, uh, hopefully you're ready to be surprised. Hopefully you're ready to be surprised. May this be a, indeed a joyous season for you. You know, it always is a wonder, I think, when we behold somebody being surprised by a gift. You know, when you uh, see their look of puzzlement and then their look of exhilaration at what's been given to them. That's part of what Isaiah was uh, pointing to that when when the Messiah came it would be a gift of a joyous gift uh, I think we need to hear about that and uh, so I've, I've asked some people this morning to consider as they look back uh, over the last year what's been something that's been 
so surprising and such an amazing gift to you. Um, I know I've got at least two people who are going to share. Uh, if, if I spoke to you and you have something you want to share, when it's time, please just come up. I'm going to hand the microphone off to you. So I'm going to begin with Jeffrey and Christine. So if they'll come up. That's kind of scary. He has paper in his hands. <laughs> Always come prepared. Yeah. I love this concept of the gifts you just talked about. The gifts, to look and be surprised by the gifts that the Lord is giving us. And this last year has been very interesting for us, very challenging in some ways, because a year and a half ago, I lost my job. So for the last year and a half, we've been without uh, a salary, without any steady income. We've had a little bit in different sources, but really without anything uh, coming in routinely. And yet, we've seen provision after provision. We, all of our bills are paid. Uh, we have no debt other than our house. Uh, our freezers are literally jam-packed and overflowing. We, we cannot put anything else in our fridge or freezer without taking something out first. And, and through everything, the Lord has just given us gift after gift. And in fact, that's what this paper is, is he said, we call them miracles. He said, make a list of all the miracles that you've seen. And we're, on, we're on page two. We're halfway through page two. Uh, these aren't all just in the last year, but many of them are. Many of them are, and we are so grateful uh, and thankful to the Lord for that. And we're going to look for more. Hi, church. <laughs> um, Dr. Jim asked me to share this. Um, I've only shared it twice. And so I've weeped both times, wept both times. So don't be embarrassed for me. Just be overwhelmed by the goodness and the tenderness of the Lord. But in the midst of all this chaos, and there's about 20 other things on our plate that Jeffrey did not mention, besides just not having income and, and not knowing where things are coming from and money-wise, and um, was um, in July, they um, discovered that I may have breast cancer. And as you can imagine, it was... A mess. I was a mess, and um, and uh, I don't. By the way, praise God! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's on our list. <laughs> um, but anybody who has gone through that experience knows how traumatic that is. It's like you live many, many years in every day that goes by, and um, I was asking the Lord because we we don't have any money. We really don't have much insurance, so I was floored on what we were going to do. And so um, one day I was driving down the road, and I was just talking to the Lord about it, and um, the most amazing thing happened within about a total of about three seconds, the Lord lifted the oppression, the fear, the um, just the craziness, and I saw a vision of myself at, um, with Papa God, and I was praising him and thanking him over and over for this amazing, amazing gift of breast cancer that I thought I had at the time, um, and I just, I couldn't believe the sense that I got was that he had honored me by giving me 
breast cancer, you know, and how crazy that was. And, and, um, I just, I just, I had, it was like he gave me this huge box, this huge present, and I just kept saying, thank you. Thank you for trusting me with this. Thank you for your goodness in giving me this. And it was just the most incredible experience. Right after that, you know, the oppression, the fear and stuff came back down. But I'm telling you guys, it rocked my world. It rocked my world. And Jesus we see things, it's our perspective. Whatever you're going through, it's just perspective. And so um, I, just, I just bless you guys with seeing your circumstance in the perspective that God has for it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So there, there may be someone else. I'm not saying there has to be. I'm just giving this as an opportunity to you. This isn't just from last year. Um, uh, I'm going to go back, and, and I won't take too long, to 2010. I had walked away from the Lord, had left God for uh, a period of years, and God chose to speak to me. And, of course, in my own mind, I'm saying that that's just my imagination. And, I, and God told me to test him with a worthy test. And, and so I knew I had four co-workers, uh, um, a, par, uh, a total partier, a Mormon, and a couple other co-workers, none of which were believers. And I told, uh, all right, if I'm not just hearing voices, and if you're real, you can heal these people that have never set foot inside a church ever in their whole life and may not. You can choose to heal these people. And the next day, I go to work, and as a matter of course of work, all four contacted me with work-related stuff. And why are you here at work today? I thought you were in the hospital. And all of them said, basically, you know, it's the strangest thing what happened. <laughs> Every single one of them. And, and I'd given God a day to heal them in my test. And so God started my healing in that process, in that period of time, and brought me back to him through that. And he's been working on healing my soul, my spirit, my body ever since then. I just wanted to say, um, it's been a rough six months. Uh, many of you know that I buried my father um, like a week and a half ago. Um, but the journey started about, uh, I've been back and forth to Mississippi like three times these past few months. Back and forth supporting my mom, going to check on my dad, praying, doing whatever God told me to do. But it started in July when my dad got sick and we had to take him to the doctor. In the midst of the chaos and the hopelessness, in the midst of everything that was going on, God showed us that he was good and faithful. But when we got the news, when my mom called me and she said, we're going to have to take your dad's leg off. We don't know if to do that, if he will survive the surgery or this and that, because his leg is, um, it'll get gangrene. Um, and she, she asked me, she said, should we do that? And the first thing God came to me and said was, it's better to lose his leg than his life. So um, 
the scripture that he gave me about you have to put, you know, it's better for a man and it's better for a man, you know, with a lame body to go into heaven than to be whole and go into hell. And uh, my daddy was a bitter man at the time. God always promised me years ago that my family will be saved and go into eternal life. So in the midst of this, even though things seem hopeless, uh, my dad survived the surgery. Um, my dad went through a lot of different surgeries. He went through, he was in critical care for months. We didn't know if he would make it. He's been on dialysis. He had trachs in his neck, tubes down his throat. We thought he was going to pass. But the times that God had me to come there, it was powerful ministry. It would have me to go and pray over my dad with worship music. And in the midst of that, you can see the move of God. You can see the strength in my mother. You can see God preparing my mom for what's to come and preparing the whole family. Even in the midst of that, God still would use us in a mighty way when we are available. There was salvation there. There was a young man that was a gang member. He got, he gave his life to the Lord. Now he's beginning to um, bring other people to God. So it's so much in the midst of what was happening. But to make a long story short, at the end, as God was preparing all of us, that the last time I went, um, we was going to take the trach out of his neck. We didn't know if he was going to breathe, um, but he did. And I remember I went into intercession for me and my family. And it was such a strong intercession. And uh, everybody was fearful. We didn't want to let him go. But it was almost at the end there was a release. Let him go. I got him. And during this time, God was doing even a breaking. We don't know the conversations that was going on between my dad and Jesus while he was in and out of, the, out of that state. Because he never really gained consciousness to the full. So at the end, when he did that, I heard Jesus tell me, I'm going to take him in three days, Brenda. And I was like, no, really? <laughs> but in exactly three days after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving, my dad's heart just stopped. And I literally saw in the spirit him stand up with both legs because both of his legs had to get cut off and walk to Jesus in his gown. And Jesus said, I took him. So you see in the midst of chaos, in the midst of things of hopelessness, that things that happen, there is a joy. And, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But my daddy is in heaven fishing with Jesus. Because he loves to fish. So I just want to thank God for his goodness and his faithfulness that he promised he will take. Even though we're going to miss our dad and all of that and everything that with my family and just keep my mom in prayer. But God has a glow on her even giving her a strength and that the people don't understand how she is making it. And so there's so many miracles and the goodness of the Lord during this time of trial for the past six months that we've been through. And it's even brought me closer and my family closer to the Lord and knowing that he is faithful in everything that he say. Let us hear the word of the Lord. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one that was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a, a great prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had defied the expectations of the people who earnestly were searching for, hoping for, longing for the coming king. He defied the expectations of the powerful. He defied the expectations of his own family and even those who were called to follow him. His birth defied expectation. He did not come as a triumphant king. He came as a helpless baby, dependent upon the family in which he was placed. That was not the expectation of those who were looking for his coming. While many waited with expectant joy of his arrival, his coming was a source of anxiety for others. Luke informs us that when Mary was greeted by Gabriel with, the greet, with this greeting, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Luke reports that she was greatly troubled. She wondered, what could this greeting mean? He came as a helpless baby, but even as a baby, he was subject to the fear and the hate of those empowered. Herod, the account says, was troubled. And when Herod was anxious, everybody around Herod was anxious. Herod was one who had sought to be named King of Judah by the Romans. He had traveled to Rome asking for that favor. He was a jealous, paranoid, and a dangerous man. He was so su suspicious of his family that he had one of his sons and his wife murdered because he believed they were plotting against him to overthrow him. His paranoia claimed the lives of those around him. He ordered the deaths of infants because they were born 
at the time when the wise men came and told him of this wonderful event of the birth of the king of the Jews. Herod's rage could boil over and consume innocent children, members of his own family, so it's no surprise that when Matthew states that when Herod was anxiously troubled, so was everyone else in Jerusalem. It was in this context that the Lord told Joseph to flee with that baby and with his wife to Egypt and stay there until God told him it was safe to return. Jesus didn't come to an established, noble, privileged family. He lived in the household of Carpenter. He dumbfounded his parents when they discovered him astounding the teachers in the temple courts with his wisdom and understanding. And his parents, they were astounded as well because when they were on their way back home, assuming he was in the entourage of family and friends, he had not even told them he was going to stay in Jerusalem. Now imagine you don't know where your 12-year-old son is. Would you be astounded? Perhaps a little aggravated? Maybe a bit anxious? As parents, they didn't find him for three days. And so they were probably not so much astounded at his wisdom, but at his absence without informing them where he was. His neighbors were troubled at his message. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. His neighbors were not too happy with Jesus. They were so incensed at the time they wanted to throw him off a cliff and kill him. When responding to those who declared their standing before God was guaranteed because they were descendants of Abraham. Jesus said, well, if you were really Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. To which they responded, well, we're not illegitimate children. His ministry defied the expectation of many. Jesus, as Bernard told us last week, Jesus was baptized by, by John. And this was a puzzle because the baptism was a baptism for sinners. John was puzzled. 
the Pharisees, the conservative religious segment of that day, they were critical of for Jesus. And while he didn't align himself with the people they opposed, the politically powerful and social elite who owed their position, status, and wealth to cronyism and collusion with the hated Romans, neither did he align himself with the socially conservative and religious leaders of his time whose message was one of holiness and pursuing a righteous life. Jesus was more at home with what I call the God-fearers of his day. They didn't believe they could ever attain the kind of holiness the Pharisees were advocating. And while Jesus could identify with them, neither did he completely trust himself to them. The Gospel of John says many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but he would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. After the people saw the miraculous signs Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet that is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You see, they didn't want him to set the agenda. They wanted to set the agenda and place him in power. Rather than submit themselves to the agenda that God, through Jesus, was announcing. He came preaching, healing every disease, increasing his fame by word of mouth. And yet, he confounded his own disciples. On the way to a little town, two of his disciples are walking with him and they don't recognize him. And they say, you know, we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. He even defied the expectation of the one who declared that he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. So now John was languishing in prison. He was so certain before. He is the one. After me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He must become greater. I must become less. But John now, he's in prison probably fully aware he's never going to leave that place. You know, when people are facing death, it's not uncommon to wonder, has my life mattered? Was it really worth anything? So John sent two of his disciples to ask, are you really the one? 
who was to come? Or should we expect another? The account in Luke about this incident says at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall on account of me. Jesus' ministry was one of teaching and doing. He taught that the kingdom of God was near. He described what that kingdom is like and he demonstrated the rule of the kingdom in what he did. So he told John's disciples, report this. It makes me think of a military formation uh, that's called for accountability. If it's a company formation, whoever is in charge will loudly proclaim, company, attention, report. All present and accounted for. Jesus tells the two representatives, go and report to John what you have heard, the teaching that Jesus did, and what you have seen, the miraculous. What he tells them to report is reminiscent of Isaiah's prophetic uh, account of the messianic advent the coming of the Messiah. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. Aren't crocus amazing? They just... It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God. So strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. These were the signs of the coming of the king. The healing of body and soul still remain the signs of the king who is coming again. So we should in this season hear with surprise and joy what God continues to do in the lives of people. He does it in unexpected ways. He doesn't do it according to our agenda or the way we think it should go. So hopefully this season, it's a, indeed 
a season of joy and thanksgiving for all the demonstrations of God's provision and care for you and others. Hopefully we remember what Paul said. Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. During the season of healing, hopefully we remember with thanksgiving the mercy, the grace, and the blessings that we have seen in our own lives and in the lives of others. We all should have some experiences from our relationship with the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which reinforce our trust and our hope in God. And these in turn should be reminders for our present journey to keep or continue to ask, and it will be given to you. Continue to seek and you will find. Continue to knock and the door will be open to you. But we may be like John. And we may be like the others that Jesus spoke to. You see, either we'll be surprised in this season or we'll be scandalized. Jesus said, blessed is the one who takes no offense. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Are you facing the troubles of this life? Do you need the healing of body? Do you need the healing of your soul? Do you seek provision for your circumstances? Then continually seek and ask and knock. Continually remember the words of James. Is any one of you in trouble? You should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Just as in Jesus' day, he pointed to signs of the coming kingdom through his teaching and his healing, this remains true today. But remember, it doesn't always go the way you think it should. You don't get to be the one to announce to God what his agenda should be. He's announcing to you what yours should be. The Gospels are full of the stories of people who were offended by Jesus because he did not meet their expectation. Tell John what you've seen and heard. Blessed is he who is not scandalized by me. We too need to be mindful rather than taking offense when it appears that God's agenda doesn't align with ours. Instead, we must submit our spirits, our souls, and our bodies to the risen King. Isaiah said this, and he was pointing to Jesus. 
Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. After John's disciples left, Jesus asked the crowd, What did you go out to the desert to see? It was not convenient or easy to go see John. You had to do it on purpose. It wasn't just an accident. He was preaching out in the desert. So he says, well, why'd you go to the trouble? He says, did you go out to see a a reed swayed by the wind? I, I couldn't understand what that meant. You know, the wind... It moves things about. So he says, you know, well, with John, was he like that? Was he kind of unstable and moved by every gust of wind? No, he was a pretty direct man. (laughs) He wasn't swayed by an awful lot. So no, you didn't go out to see that. Well, did you go out to see a refined man? No. What did you go out to see? Why did you go to that trouble? Did you go to see a prophet? Now remember, these were people whose ancestors for 400 years had not heard the voice of a prophet. So he said, yes, but I tell you, you went to see more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. And so he says, John was more than a prophet. He was the fulfillment of a prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. It comes from the book of Malachi. He was, as the forerunner of Jesus, he was greater than the voice of all the others. But Jesus said, that of all those born of women, none was greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom, born of the Spirit, are greater than John. You are greater than he. You're not just born of woman, you're born of the Spirit. And so in this kingdom, we live in a new era, once for all forgiveness of sins, immediate access to God's presence, and marvelously, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He indeed, as we declare in the carols of this season, he is Emmanuel. That's not just a phrase. He is with you we may find ourselves questioning like John did. I liked what Bernard said last week. You know, the miraculous 
It's supposed to lead to repentance. It's supposed to lead to changed ways of thinking. And the unrepentant cities that Jesus was speaking to, the religious leaders of the day, the ruling political class, the scribes or the lawyers of that day, those who would have made Jesus a political figure and those who wanted to use Jesus to implement their vision of the kingdom, they were all scandalized. They all fell away. They tripped over Jesus because he wasn't who they thought he should be. Jesus called for a changed way of thinking. The young man had been out on his own when he was 12 years old. His parents, his mother, his stepfather were not stable people. And he learned the lesson of life, well, nobody is going to take care of you. You have to take care of yourself. And he became a hard, bitter, old soul at the age of 16. And he continued to wonder, well, why do people have it out for me? Why do I lose job after job? Not seeing his own reflection that he was a bitter, harsh, hard to live around person. He wanted to lay the responsibility on everybody else. Not realizing what was called for was a changed way of thinking. When we will not change our minds about a matter, we're stuck where we are. You see, what you believe leads to a predictable end. And rather than wondering, why am I still in this place? We need to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus who's calling us to a changed way of thinking rather than rigidly, tenaciously holding on to what keeps us in a harsh, broken, dark despairing place change must happen first within us before there can be change around us and if you don't grasp that you will remain exactly where you are scandalized by the word of the Lord Jesus said to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to others, let's play the flute, let's play wedding. And you did not dance. And they say, we sang a dirge, let's play funeral. But you did not mourn. For John came neither 
eating nor drinking, and they say, well, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. And then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they were not repentant. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I tell you that on that day, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it is for you. Harsh words to people who've seen the blind come to see and the lame come to walk. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise. The good news of Jesus, you know, it sounds like foolishness to those who are not born of the Spirit. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It's reasonable. But you cannot logically move your way apart from God revealing himself to this way of viewing life and him. He went on to say, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He chooses to reveal himself to you if you're willing to listen. Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of the downtrodden and the heavy laden. At the end of this chapter, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us to come. The word for heavily burdened here is a passive participle. Uh, what that means is it's not something you on your own decided to pick up. No, it was something that's been placed on you. You've passively have entered into this place. You didn't ask for it. You didn't want it, but there you are. Before we can see the rest Jesus speaks of here, we must be willing to set aside our expectation of how that rest will come. We must be willing to have a changed mind, a repentant spirit. Jesus invites us to come and place ourselves in the yoke that he wears. He's not asking us to take upon something upon ourselves that he himself has set himself apart from. 
he invites us to come, he says he's gentle and humble. That's what that yoke represents is servitude and humility. He invites us to come and learn from him. Now, that's not a message that most people want to hear. Most of us want the place of privilege, not the towel and washing people's dirty feet. Paul gives us a bit more explanation of Jesus' humility and the learning to which we are called. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't continue to live in a place of privilege. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We remain between the first coming and all the signs of that coming, that yet continue. And we remain here until his second advent. The sign of his first coming was the blind received sight. The lame walked. The unclean were cleansed. The deaf were restored to hearing. The dead were raised and the downtrodden, those for whom their lives meant nothing in the community. They were regarded of no worth and no value. They were the ones on whose backs the Roman, the great Roman Empire was built, who gave their lives not out of their desire, but because they were forced to. Jesus says the healing of the body and the spirit and the soul were signs of the first coming and they yet remain the sign of God's presence. And the one who is the Lord and Savior of the weary and the heavy laden, who are invited to confess what Father God says concerning his Son, he is the one who wants to demonstrate his reign in us not the other way around. So his reign in us, he says, come and receive respite. Learn from him who is the way, the truth, and the life. I like Christine's three seconds. It's a respite from the load. Sometimes we receive that marvelous blessing 
of being free from all the cares of this world, free from disease. It was declared that the captives would be set free, but John was still in prison. Was he scandalized? Or in retrospect, would he be surprised? You know, memory is a wonderful thing. Not every experience we have is shaped into a memory. You know, if I would say to you, where were you April 23rd, 2004? Most of you would know generally what town you lived in. At least hopefully you would remember that. Uh, but if, if you were to say, well, do you mean what happened on April 23rd? No, I haven't got the foggiest idea. Not every experience is shaped into a memory. Memories have sensory, affective, and cognitive aspects. What in the world does that mean, Jim? Well, it means this, that memory always involves our senses. We can look back and remember what we saw, what we heard, what we felt, what we smelled, what we tasted. Additionally, that event means something. That's why we hold it in memory. So if I would ask all of you, well, where were you September 11th, September 1st, 2001? You'd all remember exactly where you were because that event meant something. You believed something and you felt something. The apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Remember me. Call me to mind again. Visualize me. Hear me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new agreement that God has made. It's no longer the, lamb, the, the blood of sheep and lambs. It's the blood of the Lamb of God. It's a new agreement that God has made with us. That if but by faith we come and we say, Lord Jesus, you purchased me. I belong to you. You bought me. I claim you as my king, as the one who has the right to speak into my life, as the one who has the right to reign within me, no matter what circumstance I am in. This is the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Remember, remember me. He is the one who by virtue of his broken body and shed blood has become the Lord and Savior of the brokenhearted and the weary 
the heavy burdened, who look to him as their very source of life and sustaining, of hope, when hope seems incongruent and groundless, who continue to live by the reasoning of this dark age, then that hope seems without any foundation. Yet, that hope is where we will find our healing and our respite of spirit and soul if we will but gladly claim our Lord Jesus as Lord and King and place our trust in him for all that he willingly gives to us. So now, right now, he invites you to come. He invites you to come. He invites us as we respond with our own hope in this dark age and declare in the midst of our labor our hope in him. And as we remember all that he has done that's a source of joy, we remember and in coming we also declare, even so, Lord Jesus, come. He invites you. I'm not the host of this occasion. The Lord Jesus is. And so he asks you in the midst of wherever you are in life right now, may this season be a season of surprise not a season to be scandalized. And so may you come and as we, uh, as we share in communion together, may you come and receive all that he has for you and may you remember for when we fail to remember, we lose who we are and we lose our way. So he invites you so we're going to ask you to come.